Oh, very important. Paul Roma got into the heart of this with his endogenous growth model. The ideas in circulation and how they are absorbed and taught in a society matters a great deal. And Brad Kaplan has this paper on the idea trap. It's about how poor societies can be stuck in a loop of bad ideas. Yeah, and that's where the idea for the show came from. So what should we call it? How about ideas on trap? Oh, wait, are we on? Yeah, welcome to Ideas on Trap. A podcast about ideas on growth, progress, and everything else about the political economy. This is Ideas on Trapped, and I'm here with Adidayo Bakari. Adidayo is an investment banker, an economist, an entrepreneur, and an all-round smart guy. <laughs> so, Dayo, it's nice to have you here. Thanks for having me, Toby. Uh, I've been looking forward to this. I'm very excited. Yeah, so have I. Actually. <laughs> <laughs> so let me just jump right in on something you said very recently you know, about trade. That, um, for example, if a country collects twenty percent of its taxes yeah. in tariffs, it's definitely killing trade. You know. I just explore that angle a bit and get us into your frame of mind in okay. thinking about that. Okay. So, I think I was responding to um, a tweet about the implications in terms of tax revenues if Africa countries get to implement this continental trade agreement that was recently signed that will start being implemented in 2020. And so, um, I think one of the issues, I mean, at least protests from some segments of, say, policy analysts, is that um, a lot of African countries actually depend on revenues from trade, that is tariff revenues. And um, one of the ways I think that happens is, I mean, most um, African economies are informal in nature. In Nigeria, for instance, I think IMF estimates that the level of informality we have in the economy is around 60%. So what happens is government is not able to tax a lot of productive activities that's going on in the economy. And one of the easiest ways to continue to raise money, um, which also is tied to you know, the industrial policy, is around um, tariffs. In Nigeria, for instance, we're very big on tariffs to encourage what they call local production, even if in some cases we do not have the capacity to do it. But government never stops. The auto policy, for instance, that was implemented under um, the Jonathan era raised tariff on motor vehicles to like 70% to encourage FDI into assembly plants for, for cars and all sorts. Then you start to imagine how does this even make any sense when, you know, we really do not have the capacity, we don't have the skill, expertise, we don't have a good business environment that should support you know, industrialization. So why are we embarking on such a policy? And since the implementation of that policy, it has failed woefully. Because obviously, I think it's only innocent that's been able to at least benefit from that policy. And even when you think in terms of um, its manufacturing capacity, how many cars does it produce in a year? Um, in terms of how affordable the car is, is it affordable for the ordinary Nigerian to buy? It's not. So obviously, you have 
you have that problem. Now, in terms of revenues, one of the easiest ways to actually raise revenue is also to raise tariffs. You can have 30% tariffs, you can have you know 50% tariffs on some items. And that is why over time, um, when you combine that with the largely informal economy where taxation is very, very low, tax to GDP ratios are lower than, say, other emerging markets and advanced economies, then you, you tend to get a sense of why tariff revenues make up in a very large share of government's revenue. Now, my argument is the starting point should not be that a lot of African countries will lose revenues from tariffs. The starting point should be that does it even make sense for an economy to be reliant on trade for its revenues, that is in terms of you know tariff revenues as a share of total government revenues. If we look at most of, say, the advanced economies, we see that tariff revenues are a very, very small component yeah. of, um, of total government earnings. And I feel like that is what Africa should try to explore. <coughs> and by exploring that, we could open up a new visa of opportunities for the economy, which could propel growth and prosperity. But the catch is this. It is very, very easy to quantify one. The other is very hard to quantify. Yeah. You can easily quantify the fact that, oh, if we export a certain amount of goods in a year, um, if we tax it at this rate, we're going to obtain this size of revenue. But when you tell a government to, oh, relax your tariffs to encourage maybe even your manufacturing sector, such that they have access to quality raw materials, um, it's hard to capture to, you know, the productivity gains for the company or basically um, the employment potential of it, and even the taxes that accrue to the government from that extra productivity. It's actually hard for um, economists to quantify them. So that is why it's easy for someone to come out and say, oh, Cote d'Ivoire is going to lose 10% of their, of their uh, um, revenue. revenues because you know, of the implementation of AFC, FT, or whatever. Yeah. So apart from the fact that a lot of Africans do not even trade, a lot of African countries do not trade with Africa, yeah. So a large chunk of the tariff is actually trade with external partners, that mm. is um, Asia primarily now, mm. and uh, maybe Europe. In the case of Nigeria, I think our major trading partners are Asia and Europe. So even when we start to develop you know, local value chains to say we'll be exporting into the African market, um, some of the um, natural resources that we have, most African countries do not even have the capacity or the industry to use it. So we still have to export a lot of those things outside Africa. And you can still generate your, you know, whatever tariff revenues you're obtaining from that. But really the idea is that for African countries, we have to look past trade as this money spinning machine for the government. It's something that should spur enterprise and development and the development of processing industries and local value chains. We should see it as something... We should see it in the sense that um, the way the World Bank captures ease of doing business, say, oh, um, access to roads or the time it takes to um, register a, 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 a company or to register a property. Yeah. Trade should also be something like that. I mean, tariffs should also be something like that. How liberal your tariffs are, yeah. especially in, in developing countries, mm-hmm. because it's also important. It goes a long way in what you have in the manufacturing sector. And I think nobody would argue, even the government, with what we've seen you know, between 2015 and 2016 when we had the currency crisis. And a lot of manufacturing companies could not obtain 
um, raw materials yeah. to be used in production, and we saw the impact on the books of those companies. And even for government, which eventually collects revenue from them. So I think that is the way to actually think about it. Unfortunately, trade is very, very um, contentious. Why is that, really? Is it really a case of failing to learn from history? Because, I mean, you talk about quantifiability. It may be difficult in the case of um, any specific country to prospectively quantify how much you gain from trade. Trade, But historically, we know there are gains from trade. Yes. Huge gains, actually. So is it simply a case, what what is really the constraint? Why is trade so contentious for us? Um, It's really the way we think about it. In Nigeria, for instance, many people see um, trade imports, for instance, they see it as if you're importing from someone, and you're at a disadvantage, right? That's the general idea, which the Nigerian uh, media we call waste. So Nigeria wastes, you know, $200 million importing tomato paste. Yeah. Or Nigeria or we, are, we are losing... Or we are losing yeah. um, our efforts yeah. to importing iPhones. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they never say that about iPhones. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or champagnes, but that's what They never say that. <laughs> so you start to wonder why... I think there are several reasons. One of the reasons that I feel like most people overlook is the average Nigerian believe that when it comes to certain kind of products, agriculture is one. The Nigerian might have a palm oil tree in their house, or they do maize, you know, in their backyard. They plant maize in their backyard, which even if it's not commercial farming for subsistence use, and a lot of them. It's hard for them to understand that people trade based on you know what we now know as comparative advantage, right? You specialize in something you can do better than other countries, such that by the time you're exporting to other countries, they'll buy it cheaper and um, you know it's good for everybody. But the average Nigerian believes, you know, agriculture, we're very big on agriculture, we have the land, so I can, you know, I can plant um, oranges behind my in my garden. So why are you not saying Nigeria cannot produce this and we have to import it? They do not understand that it's probably cheaper, maybe 50% even cheaper, to plant rice in Thailand or Vietnam than in Nigeria. Most do not understand that maybe the soil you have, the soil formation you have, is not conducive to deriving you know, IEUs on those products. And it's on that basis that you have trading with other nations because... You assume that, oh, a country can do it better than you, and you go there to import it. And basically, um, the average Nigerian doesn't understand that. They just want to know that palm oil, we are good at palm oil. Um, Malaysia, they came to get their seeds. Yeah, how true is that? (laughs) (laughs) I actually don't know how true that is. But they will tell you that Malaysia, they came to get their seeds for palm oil in Nigeria. And now, look at them. They are the largest you know, uh, producers of, um, um, of palm oil. Whatever in, proxy we, we Exactly, we in, in the world. Yeah. And you begin to answer, okay, so let's even assume we, they got the seedlings from Nigeria. What have we done to improve those seedlings? There are different varieties of palm oil, for instance. They have this um, tenera, the specifera, there's another one. And what you find that a lot of Nigerians are planting, 
there are varieties that have not been improved. So in terms of yields, it's very, very poor. The gestation period is extended. Some go into six, seven years. You see um, palm trees taller than houses that you're basically going to hire someone to help you harvest your fruits. So many do not think in the sense that that is unproductive. They don't think in the sense that the yields are very, very poor. Because when you process, what you can derive, the output you can derive is actually very, very low compared to other countries. They just think in terms of, we can plant it in Nigeria. They don't think in terms of, can we plant it better than other countries? I mean, rice or palm oil or whatever it is, essentially. So in a way, I feel like that is actually a crucial factor. Because in my discussions with ordinary Nigerians, they'll tell you, I plant cassava, I plant yeah, this. Yeah. But the question is not if you can plant it. We have bamboo, so why do we have to import why, why do we have to import toothpicks? Exactly. Mm-hmm. But do you have the ecosystem to support the production of toothpicks? Well, we have just tomatoes wasting in the north. Uh, why are we importing tomato paste? Yeah. It goes beyond primary production, being able to produce tomatoes. Then you start asking, what kind of variety of tomatoes? Are you even producing? Are they suitable for processing? So those are the questions that Nigerians do not understand. And there's also the case, uh, which is something connected to what is, I think, happening all over the world. We've seen um, rising protectionism. Yeah, yeah. um, It's actually all over the world. And one of the things is... Sad. It is sad. (laughs) So um, for trade, um, overall, there is a net gain, right? Yeah. It's been proven historically, yeah. that there's a net gain to society from trading. However, there could also be displacements Definitely. in certain you know, sectors or industries. So you have politicians appealing to those sentiments. Yeah. And a lot of that rich people too we tend to appeal to those sentiments. Mm-hmm. Because even when you see the conversations around the free trade agreement in Africa, a lot of people would um, say, oh, um, they will come and dump goods in Nigeria. Yeah. You know, um, the manufacturing sector are going to kill jobs. They're going to, you know, do this. And I always tell them, have you even taken a look at the manufacturing sector in Nigeria? Uh, as a share of GDP, it's not so big, right? But when you take it in absolute terms, I think there are only maybe three more countries that have bigger manufacturing sectors. Um, maybe Egypt. Morocco is also doing a lot now. And um, South Africa. Yeah. Now, the, the challenge with Nigeria is our manufacturing is not quite as sophisticated or complex as what you have in South Africa, in Morocco, or in Egypt, for instance. But in terms of saying, oh, do we have a big manufacturing sector? Yeah, we have a bigger manufacturing sector than most of um, um, African peers. We actually export a lot of manufacturing products through land, right? And of course, there's a question where, also when you think in terms of the trade balance, manufacturing trade balance in other African countries, I think we only have a negative trade balance with probably South Africa, right? When you look at West Africa as a whole, in terms of manufacturing, we actually have a positive trade balance with West Africa because we have a big you know, manufacturing sector, even if it's just textiles or, or footwear and garments being manufactured in uh, Abia. I mean, Aba, we are sending it to the mm-hmm. Republic, we are sending it to Togo, we are sending it to um, Cameroon. Um, it is not even as sophisticated, but we are, I mean, at least doing something. The, the problem is we don't want them to send to us. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> now, the problem is you don't want <laughs> those things to come into Nigeria. So, in that sense, there's a lot of fear around 
the dislocation of maybe workers, and um, there's a lot of literature on it as well. Yeah. And many would usually say, oh, they should, you know, maybe train people who lose jobs and try to integrate them into, you know, other sectors of the economy. Or, but I think one of the things we're missing is, um, even in terms of manufacturing, um, if we have a liberal, if we have liberal trade in Africa, it could actually open, you know, doors for other industries which would actually not look that in Africa that would actually take up some of the employed people. Um, as a share of employment, the manufacturing sector is very low. I don't think the manufacturing sector employs up to um, 10%. We all scream Dangote, Dangote, Dangote. How many people can Dangote cement employ? <laughs> and even that is connected to my ideas around seeing you know manufacturing as a way to growth and prosperity in Africa. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> when you start to explore. So really, um, trade is actually very, very tedious in terms of what the underlying concept called yeah. comparative advantage, yeah. the ordinary man does not understand that. And I think that is really the biggest misconception about trade and yeah. why we have challenges having to implement liberal um, trade policies in Africa. Yeah. You talked about agriculture. So yeah. I, I'd like to explore something I was discussing recently with some people. You know, agriculture, and you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, Currently employs about fifty percent of, of very close the work very yes. close to forty five about forty five percent. But again, when you look at history, for yes. example, over say the last three hundred years, the global population we we grown the, the global population by about sevenfold. Yeah, you know, from around a billion to, to seven, seven billion yeah. currently. We've grown agricultural productivity to about tenfold. That is, we actually produce a lot more yeah. food. Yeah. But when you see agriculture share of employment, it has gone from about seventy-five percent to about two point five percent currently. So yes. now, my question is: Isn't a share of agricultural jobs really a problem for productivity? Rather than people looking at it as a positive? You know, like, oh, agriculture is the largest employer of labor in Nigeria, hence you have to direct resources to it. Yeah, but isn't the correct framework to look at it be that to achieve agricultural productivity, we might actually have to lose agricultural uh-huh. jobs? Yeah, absolutely. And it's very interesting because there was something I explored when I was at PWC, yeah. and we were looking at job creation in Nigeria. And we're looking at basically um, services, the industrial sector, yeah. and agriculture. And that forced me to like look at advanced economies and to see the structural transformation of the economies. Yeah. That is the structure of the GDP over time. Yeah. And what you discover is as um, these societies evolved as they continue to grow, the share of you know employment has reduced drastically. Later on, manufacturing starts falling. And really what starts expanding is is services that really becomes the biggest share of GDP. So in Nigeria, it's actually quite interesting that you mentioned that because we have too many people in agriculture. I believe we have too many people in agriculture and they are largely unproductive. So I've been reading a lot about what I call political crops. 
Mm. In Nigeria, um, that, being, that's interesting. <laughs> they are very political. Rice is one of them. Okay. Tomato is one of them. Okay. Oil palm is one of them. Oil from Kano. <laughs> Rice from Kano. <laughs> so, one of the experiences that shaped my ideas about agriculture is the project I was on, Bikuso International. We had to um, work with farmers in different subsectors of agriculture, and what you find out is. The challenge is actually, it's a lot of challenges, really. Um, the farmer, for instance, one of the ways government approaches it is to say, let's pump more resources into agriculture. By more resources, basically more money, cheap money. But when you go to the field, you discover that it's not necessarily cheap money that is a problem of farmers. I had farmers in my project who had money, but it was very difficult for them to source inputs. They had to travel, you know, to the next town or the next city just to get fertilizer or to get um, inputs into what they're doing. And so in my thinking about um, agriculture, um, what I would like to say is mainly Nigerian farmers are unproductive. Yields are very, very low and they've not improved for decades. Cereal, for instance, we say... Um, one of the most consumed things globally is cereal, right? And so uh, I remember I was writing a report and I had to just want to look at how yields are trended over the years. And I discovered that over the past four decades, Nigeria has made no notable progress in terms of expanding yields for cereal, which is actually, you could say, is crucial to food security, yeah, right? Yeah. Draw a chart of other countries, Asian countries, and you see the rapid kind of improvements they've made. And I feel like that's what we have to start looking at. Government has to start looking at how can we drive productivity. And one of the things I've been exploring of late to is, you know, we're giving money to all these people. Go and start farms. Um, what is the total arable land we have in Nigeria? With the level of productivity we have in this country, when the population doubles, according to UN, maybe yeah. by 2050, yeah. If we plant rice on all arable lands in Nigeria, yeah. will, it, will you be able to feed 400 million people with the level of yield you have currently? So the question is, how do we do more using you know, less land resources and getting more value per hectare? And that's one area I think the government needs to focus on that they've not been able to focus on. And to do that, really, you probably have to let go of most of the manpower you have because um, it ties into what you're saying when you start thinking, agriculture is difficult, but in Nigeria, it is usually the last hope for someone who can hack it in other fields. I'll go back to the farm, right? Yeah. They'll say they'll go back to the farm. Yeah. As yeah. if you know, agriculture is something that requires no intelligence, yeah. no form of knowledge or skill. Yeah. I'll go back to the farm. Well, I'll plant this. And that is why a lot of them can't get out of the trap. Because when you are involved in agriculture, then you start thinking about you want to start a farm, a large a PZ, for instance, um, which is doing a lot of backward integration. You want to start a farm, you want to look for, okay, where are the best places in Nigeria to site this farm, right? I want to plant rice. I'm not planting rice. Um, the land I have, is it upland or lowland? Will I need to irrigate the land? The yields on irrigated lands are better on non-irrigated lands for rice. A lot of Nigerian farmers do not know this because they have no skill, they did not go to school, they have no knowledge. Fertilizer, 
Um, what percentage of fertilizer should I apply? What size? What are the nutrients necessary for this type of crop? The average farmer cannot know this because they did not go to school. They do not have access to even informal education to learn this. Then you start asking yourself, should agriculture really be for um, the people who have not been able to do anything in their life, the people without skill, without knowledge? The government is shouting, you know, food security. To achieve that, by boosting productivity, we actually need to evolve in the way our agriculture is um, structured in Nigeria. Smallholder farmers will eventually not take us to the destination we want because they are too unproductive, they are too unorganized, and that's even when they are producing a lot, aggregating it becomes very, very difficult. Um, in terms of access to maybe improved seedlings, government is not doing enough in investing in the research institutes we have. We have agricultural research institutes. I know for one that NIFO is in Benin, and um, a lot of the palm oil farmers I monitor then usually travel to Benin to actually get seed for planting in the nursery and selling to um, farmers. There's the Foucault Research Institute. Research Institute, exactly. So, I mean, they are not investing a lot in um, for them to actually generate ideas that would you know, unlock our productivity deficit in agriculture. So for me, I feel it is necessary for Nigeria to move beyond the um, current structure we have where we have a lot of smallholder farmers. Um, like I've said, they are not fit for the job. If our task is really to feed Nigerians, right, by producing um, locally, and with full knowledge that eventually we're going to get to the stage where we won't be able to import all of our food needs, and we need to start investing locally in um, food value chains. Because if you're going to have 200 million more mouths to feed in the next um, 30 years, it's scary. Mm -hmm. And you want to ask, what are we doing? I mean, I don't know what the government is going to do about it, but the current structure, if we want economic prosperity, if we want food security, it can't stand. We need to go into, when people say large-scale, large-scale farming, because a large-scale farmer would probably be a bit more serious, will apply more thoughts before going into farming than someone who believes, you know, farming is my last resort. When I go to Lagos and it feels, you know, I go back to the farm, mm-hmm. a large-scale manufacturer will not think in terms of that. We're recently consulting for a giant in Nigerian consumer space now, household name. And so they're backward integrated and they want to start, they've actually started oil, oil palm plantations. And do you know what their challenge is now? It's actually to estimate the size of the market. Because there is no reliable data on something as simple as oil palm consumption in Nigeria. Wow. And that's basically what we're working with them on. Wow. So they want to commit a lot of resources into it. And that's how they are thinking about it, that, oh, is do this opportunity really exist? Mm. In terms of selecting a place to site their farms, we know we have more oil palm businesses in the Niger Delta, Benin and Crossover and all those places. Um, the touch required in terms of the you know, soil requirements, the um, seedlings requirement, the fertilizer requirement, you can't rely on the smallholder farmer to make those decisions. It is the large-scale farmers, the commercial farmers, that would undertake that. Um, even if later on they employ, you know, laborers on their fields. But from a strategy uh, um, perspective, 
and in terms of boosting yields and everything, they are going to apply more touch than the ordinary small older farmers. So the question is, how does this end, right? Uh, on the part of government, I'm really not optimistic that they would do more than you know just giving cheap loans or giving subsidized fertilizer. So, which is another policy area that is challenging. Um, government will say, oh, we ban the importation of fertilizer, but different farms, different crops need different fertilizer requirements. It's also a very complex decision for farmers to make, but you're selling the same type of fertilizer, or you're trying to sell the same type of fertilizer for every farmer, for the person planting maize, for the person plant, for the farmer planting tomatoes and everything. So you start asking yourself that okay, how does this um, make any sense? And to break out of this chain, I think what would just happen is a lot of Nigerian companies, especially those listed and which we talk to their management regularly, we've discovered that they are trying to backward integrate as much as possible. So maybe that would spur some form of commercial activity. And um, maybe we'll continue to have private interests, maybe beyond the requirements for them to process their goods. Yeah. They're going to start looking to export markets. And you have maybe PZ, for instance, have a whole plant partition which they do not you know, use um, all of the outputs. Maybe you know, they will now start exploring um, outside markets, markets outside Nigeria, and that could cause a chain of continuous investment in, in the value chain. That is the way I see it currently. Yeah. That those companies, rather private interests, can continue to expand and slowly we see. Because think about it, if Olam continues to invest in, in rice, for instance, and we know Olam will prioritize yields and all those things, and they will be a bit more productive, at least, than a small older farmer. We could get to a stage where Olam, even in the domestic market, they become very competitive, such that even the normal farmer won't be able to go to the market and say, oh, I want to go and sell my paddy. You get, because there's a whole land who has a large farm yeah. with very, very high yields yeah. and uh, maybe probably cheaper prices, better quality um, rice output that will make, now make, you know, the small older farmer very uncompetitive. And as a result of that, you see that the share of the small older farmer in terms of planting some of these crops that are so vital to food security continues to fall and you continue to have a lot of private interest in that area. Unfortunately, data in Nigeria is actually very hard to gather and that's one of my issues also with development interventions in Nigeria. Because when you look at multilateral firms or NGOs, once they embark on projects, there's usually a bit more thought into it, even in terms of monitoring and evaluating such projects. Even if they sometimes... Um... <laughs> invest in the wrong projects. Yes, even if they sometimes invest in the wrong projects. But to an extent, you can at least get data to analyze and see. Because we say knowledge, knowledge, knowledge is compounding now. We just didn't start using laptops or iPhones. It was some people that started and, you know, we kept building on it. We kept accumulating that type of knowledge. So in questions for the Nigerian policymakers, all the development interventions, which is one of the reasons why, probably why all these bad ideas persist anyway. Because nobody actually tracks anything. You don't monitor it. The CBN does not issue a policy paper to explain their reason for backing cassava, or for backing oil palm, or collect data on loans that were extended to farmers, repayment terms, and everything, 
on productivity monitoring those firms for the productivity for their yields. I've never seen any report on that from the CBN or for, from the Federal Ministry of Agriculture. Yet they pump billions, right? Then it's now difficult for us to measure. Did this program actually work? Did it not work? What are lessons from the past that we can actually apply to recent policies? We don't because nobody is keeping the data. So it's one of the ways I think you know all these bad ideas persist because we're not collecting data on it. There's nothing to analyze. You're basically flying blind. So as analysts, we basically just say, oh, this is unlikely to work because this, 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 or because in other countries that have done it, this is how they've gone about it. But in Nigeria, we've been doing development interventions since when? Yeah, a long for a time. very long time, and you discover that the same ideas continue to today. Exactly. And so you start to ask: if it's not working, then why do you think it's going to work now? What are we doing differently? Are we learning any lessons? I feel like if we've been le- learning a lot from those decades, we should have had you know a body of knowledge that we should have discarded some ideas already that this is not working, and we should continue to build on it, even if it takes a long time. Currently, it seems like everything is the same. Um, which is what, the same thing, they closed the border in the 1980s, they're closing the border today. Mm. So really, that is the way out, I think. We're going to have more private capital into agriculture, not deliberately or incentivized by government themselves, but by the fact that as more companies see reasons to backward integrate, as they see reasons to even improve competitiveness in terms of their sourcing because they need to protect their margins and to be competitive globally, um, we're going to see a bit more interest, and that could maybe force us to explore export markets, and that's the way out, basically. I, I have no, tr- no faith in the government to take on that up. Okay, okay. That's interesting. There are two things I would just like to quickly pick up on from what you said. You talked about um, political crops. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I love that term <laughs> so much. You know, and it's one of my challenges with um, the concept of comparative advantage. Okay. I think that the, the problem with comparative advantage in, in our own context yeah. is that we naturally see our comparative advantages in our natural resources. Okay. And when we try to do development, that's where we, we focus on we funnel resources into. And historically, you see that 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 actually causes deindustrialization because some of your trading partners, they then specialize and they only deal or trade with you based on your identified comparative advantage, which may just be primary Primary. products. And then you make a lot of money when prices, international prices are high, Mm -hmm. but you have no industrial capacity whatsoever. So do we really need to rethink the concept of comparative advantage in our own context? And then secondly, maybe a bit of a pushback on large-scale farming. Yeah. One underexplored area is uh, land rights okay. for farmers. I don't work with farmers, so I, I, I don't know much in that area. But from a, a little bit of experience, I know that some of them work in farming collectives. Yeah. Some of them do not even have rights to the land on yeah, which they, 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 they land. And if you recall, one of the big 
policy changes in Asia, for example, was to give farmers the rights to their land. Even smallholder farmers became productive, you know. So is it really about farm sizes or is it about who owns the land, basically? Mm. Uh, let me start from the first question. Yeah, I, I think in terms of um, comparative advantage, um, um, also looking at natural resources, um, I, I feel like I really don't think it's a problem with comparative advantage, right? It's more of a problem with what we've decided to focus on, which is also connected to, I think, what you mentioned earlier about um, development organizations going into wrong projects. Um, I think the starting point is trying to ask this question. How do we, in the case of Nigeria, for instance, how do we create millions of jobs, right? So I think what you look at is just which sector employs close to that? Close to that. <laughs> oh, agriculture. Okay, let's invest in agriculture. So it's something of that sort because they will say they will say you have comparative advantage. Why? Because um, a lot of them are in agriculture already. Um, like I said earlier, they're really not very knowledgeable people. So they're already in agriculture, right? I can't say Nigeria is even more productive in terms of maybe planting tomato than a comparable country, right? They can also say that, right? So rather than say maybe explore other sectors or maybe even other subsectors, even other agriculture, that will kind of bring um, a lot of change. They keep focusing on the same thing. For me, I really don't think it's about comparative advantage. You see comparative in the advantage in what you can explore, right? If you don't believe human capital can be explored for development, for instance, it's hard for you to want to now say, who, um, or for a development organization, you could say, oh, Nigeria has a lot of people, or we have a lot of young graduates, and we don't see them as um, capital. To an extent, you might not want to see them as a comparative advantage. Because basically, some do not look at human capital as a comparative advantage. And it could actually be one of the things that could unlock maybe some of the progress we want to see. Mm. But you're fixated on agriculture. You start from the sector. And you're not trying to find within the sector what Nigerians can do better. I really don't think development interventions is from the perspective of what people can do better. It's from what are people doing? <laughs> and how can we make them better at what they are doing? Mm. That's why we read FAO, World Bank, and all the research. You know, they say, oh, we have a lot of people. We have women in farming. The question is, should these women be in farming? Mm. Are they planting the right things? Should they be trained to go into other sectors where they could be better used as laborers? No. What they try to do is they're already in farming, right? Why don't we make them better at That's what they're already doing? Mm-hmm. It's really not from the, con- from the idea that what's maybe the we should, what's the best use of, of this, their, of their, of their uh, labor or their capacity of their cap- So it's basically around, let's just help them do what... It's just like um, the average Nigerian man... Um, and maybe you're a rich family man and people come and knock on your door and they come and meet you and you're like, okay, what are you doing now? Oh, I'm, I'm into furniture, right? And you're like, so what do you need to improve your business? Well, I need a loan, right? You give them the loan. You're not asking whether, oh, should you be doing carpentry, right? Shouldn't you, you know, explore something that would be better for you? It's a very lazy approach. 
agree with you. So in terms of comparative advantages, I think we've been we've, we've not been open-minded a lot about it, and we're not ready for the kind of changes we are going to have to make to look past, say, the natural resources sector as comparative advantages for Nigeria. Um, in terms of also natural resources that are very, very easy to get, um, the oil and gas sector, for instance, one could say is natural resources, right? And it's one of those sectors where, over time, maybe we should have even seen more industrialization if we've had a lot of local content into the industry. But it was so easy for us because we just had the resources. We had no capital, right? We didn't even have labor. Because <laughs> we don't have skilled personnel to actually say oh, we want to mine oil or anything. We just, you know, hired um, IOCs. IOCs. Come and do this for us. It's like you're in your house. Um, so I hire cooks, right? I hire um, cleaners, right? If I live in a rich man's house or my father is rich, I might not know how to do those things necessarily, right? Yeah. And it could be useful skills for you, maybe in terms of application, even if you don't want to become a cook or you don't want to become a cleaner, right? But nobody thinks about that. And that is one of the things I've seen in that sector as well. Because if you think about oil and gas, it's very capital intensive. You need a lot of knowledge. You need to be able to build things, right? And apply things. And yet, we've not seen its uh, um, kind of spur innovation in other sectors of the economy. Yeah. That is the knowledge we've learned from uh, yeah. building ships or building rigs or doing all those things. We've not been able to see it in other parts of the economy. We, we can't even maintain refineries. <laughs> not stop building new things. Even in natural resources, there are you know, unexplored areas that would actually cause a chain of development in other sectors. We've not seen it, really. And it's actually quite disappointing. I think um, also it's on the part of government to do most of these things. Um, in terms of local content, they're celebrating this Eugenia field that was recently I said oh, they did the fabrication and whatever at Labdol here in Nigeria. But aren't we like four decades late or something? <laughs> because imagine if we've had that from the start and yeah. we've had a lot of a lot of those people would have with the knowledge they've acquired and all that they have probably gone into um, other sectors, you know, maybe the one service in the oil and gas industry, then you see knowledge keeps, you know, uh, um, populating. Yeah, exactly, all over the uh, um, the economy. So I think for us, it's not really just even about natural resources. We, with oil and gas experience, we've not taken advantage of some of the benefits that have offered us in, in terms of building an industrialized economy or a knowledge economy. Mm. So, oh, the, 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 the second question was on. Uh, farmers okay, on, on, on land rights. Land rights. Yeah. So um, let me give you a bit of perspective for what I've learned. Yeah. Okay. So I worked in Yala local government. It's very close. To Ogoja. Ogoja is one of the popular places in Crossover and Obutu. Okay. Yeah. Very close to Northern Crossover. Mm-hmm. And one of the villages we worked in, one of the issues we discovered was it was very difficult to get land for women. Because women were not sort of entitled to land. So even if the you know father dies and there's inheritance, land inheritance, yeah. it goes to the men, right? It doesn't go to, to, the women. to the women. And one of the things we are trying to do then is try to talk to the communities to actually realize some of those rules. So um, using that as an example, I would say to an extent, yeah, it affects because the pay rent on the land 
and some the cost of um, acquiring some of the land can be bad. So um, for women farmers, even if they're very productive on their farmlands, when you account for you know the cost of um, acquiring the land or even securing the land, you discover that they're not getting quite much in terms of their output. Yeah, I absolutely agree that land rights are critical to farmers, but I don't believe it's the major thing holding farmers back. I feel like knowledge, you can have land and not have knowledge, and you still be unproductive without knowledge. So maybe the farmers we had in Asia, it's maybe something I have to read up on. Um, farmers have access to land, right? It's a good thing for farmers in Asia, but I believe that was not the single most important determinant of their productivity. De definitely. Exactly. Definitely. There is still a bit of knowledge gap yeah. with an average Asian farmer yeah. compared with a Nigerian farmer. But I feel like from the experience I had on ground, land is absolutely crucial because it gave us you know, a lot of headache. You know when we've invested a lot in people, technical training, giving them grants, training them, sponsoring them, feeding them. And at the point where they are supposed to start engaging in that activity, they weren't able to secure lands, or the lands they, they, um, they were able to get, which men were able to get very easily, um, women had a challenge to um, getting it, or they had to pay a high price for it. And you discover in most cases, most of the lands they eventually get are those lands that are not quite as good, and I would take them to work long hours before you get to it. <laughs> you know when you have to work one hour, 13 minutes, you want to go and farm, you have to walk for one hour, 13 minutes wow. to get to your land before you... You can imagine the energy you've lost by walking one hour, 13 minutes yeah. just before you get to your farm. Then you start asking, you know, and that's one of the challenges most of these people have in terms of securing you know, access to land. So I feel it's crucial for us to figure out a way to encourage farmers to have access to land, especially for women. Women are at a particular disadvantage. But I feel like it's still not going to kind of release the kind of impact we want in that sector. We still need knowledge, really. Uh, yeah, I agree. And a quick side note on that um, point. I think one of the least appreciated things about development in Asia is yeah. the incredible amount of human capital yeah. that went into some of the reforms. You know, like when you see people say, oh, Asia did this, and hence we should uh, do it too. Mm. We usually don't think about the state capacity, for one. That is the human capital that is within the government bureaucracy <laughs> itself. These are incredibly knowledgeable guys yeah. who read a lot, who researched a lot, who actually were on ground and exactly. know what is going on in their countries. And they could actually push through those reforms and they could see where things are going wrong and yeah. tweak and change costs exactly. if necessary. You know, you think about Korea, you know, sometimes we think that history begins at the inflection point, but usually it doesn't. You know, exactly. Because I've read multiple papers about even the incredible amount of human capital, even in terms of industrial capabilities that Korea acquired under Japanese colonization, you know, but we look at an independent Korea yeah, exactly. and what they did, and we say, oh, yeah, they did 
so and so policy, and we should try and replicate uh, uh, that. Neglecting the knowledge transfer. E exactly. So I, I agree with you about human capital. It's extremely important, and I'm quite big on that as well. Okay. Let's talk about private capital now, which okay. you mentioned earlier. Now, shouldn't the capital be going to processing? I remember in one of your articles, yeah. you, you talk about the processing gap yeah. in agriculture in Nigeria. Should private capital really be going into the same yeah. things that we've been doing, which is production? You know, because you read things like um, Ivory Coast, for example, only gets about one point something billion yeah. from cocoa from exports, exports, whereas Germany processes the same cocoa into coffee and it other products and gets a three, four times the value. Yeah. You know? So shouldn't private capital be exploring processing? Wouldn't that be even yes. more... more uh, 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 yeah, yeah, I, I believe so. And one of the things I explored in that article was to say one of the things holding processing back, agricultural processing back, for most of the companies we have in Nigeria is because most times... In terms of the inputs they want, in terms of quality of the inputs, yeah. in terms of the quantity of the inputs, they can't get it locally because of the way agriculture is done currently. Mm -hmm. You have a lot of smallholder farmers spread across vast geography, sometimes unorganized. Even in the organized state, sometimes they are still very, very tiny. Mm -hmm. And as a company, you want a reliable source. For your supply. Of supply, because you don't want disruptions to production. You have commitments to meet as well yeah. for your business. So one of the ways Nigerian companies are trying to overcome that is actually all the nursing backward integration, where they have to do everything on their own, right? So rather than rely on the farmers to give me the, the quality and the quantity I have, why don't I invest in the primary bits? And most of the challenges Nigerian farmers have I am able to leapfrog it because, oh, maybe I build a warehouse, I build storage facilities and all those things. But to come to the point about shouldn't private capital be going into um, processing? Yes, absolutely, I believe private capital should go into processing, not just um, in terms of raw materials. If the few primer or um, Nazi makers of Indomie or PZ, if they are able to get a lot of land, and they're able to improve processing. Of course, a lot has to do also with the business environment in Nigeria. For you to now say processing is competitive for other markets. Because in a situation where there's a lot of protection of industries, how do you know you're truly competitive? Yeah. And when all you do is sell to, to Nigeria. So when you now start looking at processing and you discover that we're only just 200 million people and you need to export outside the country, then the protection you've enjoyed from government might actually now put you at a disadvantage in terms of being able to compete with someone from Ghana or someone from Côte d'Ivoire. The initial stages is what we are seeing currently in terms of companies themselves going into primary agriculture. Um, like I've said, knowledge is going to be accumulated. With the progress they're able to see over time, if they're able to not just improve the way they do their business, and if they're able to really maybe fine-tune whatever models they're using, because many backward integration models are filled as well. Mm. the Tomato, for instance, I think they've opened it since 2016. They've not produced anything. Is it really closed? I hear it's closed. It's closed. Because, you know, people just think things are easy to do. 
because you see tomato <laughs> some place. So I think what he did was he had a contract with farmers, right? Yeah. That oh don't worry, I'll give you you know seedlings, I'll give you maybe fertilizer, I'll give you a bit of capital. Um, plant this thing for me, right? And come and sell to me. The model failed because some of these farms, it's still the same farmers, right? Yeah. They're still not knowledgeable enough or anything. Then some would say, oh, they didn't get the inputs on time before the planting season or the capital on time. Some would say the agreements they had without the tomato. Maybe at the point of planting, markets change rapidly. Yeah. Right? yeah. Prices change rapidly. If um, I signed a contract to give one ton of tomato to to land with that five thousand naira per ton or something for, for an example. And you lock and you lock that in. And I lock that in. Yeah. And <laughs> and, then, and upon harvest, I discovered that market price is seven thousand. The Nigerian farmer does it. Well, There's obviously you know um, conflict then. Then how do I maximize the output? So in most cases, you see them, they're going to sell at the open market to get, which of course I can't blame um, um, the farmer, right? But it's one of the things you have to start thinking about even when you say, well, I want to contract farmers to do all kinds of businesses for me. So that has actually also failed. Some companies also, lessons from what they've done before, they're trying to use it to start new programs or new backward integration schemes that would actually, you know, maybe be more favorable to them and support their type of business. For me, I believe if we're able to get to an extent where um, a lot of these firms, a lot of them are able to do this or keep doing this, it could even force a lot of, you know, investment into processing. If I know that Olam, for instance, can supply this raw material rather than exporting it out of um, Nigeria, you could have maybe private capital coming to Nigeria, even maybe local capital want to go into processing because at least it's easier to, I mean, I can source locally from competitive producers, Olam, or even if it's PZ that wants to later do that, even if they don't intend to expand processing to, to that scale. I feel like the developments we see could spur some interest in processing locally because you've had a lot of private interests that would come into the market and be like, okay, if there's not a reliable stream of supply for this product, do I want to commit? I don't have the capital to commit to doing, you know, primary agriculture, even the resources in terms of good money and personnel to now continue to go into that. Um, of course, I can't quantify the number of businesses that will likely go into that, but I feel like that is one of the advantages people derive from people who are truly interested in one of those segments but do not want to do um, the rest of those segments. And we have private capital into primary production could spoil a lot of more industrial processors. I feel like in every country, someone has to do the primary production anyway. Definitely. Yeah, exactly. So even if before you have processing or whatever in the U.S. and everything, someone still does the primary production. But I feel like we can do it to an extent that it could not generate a lot of interest from processors in Nigeria. Oh, okay. Okay. So let's look at the role of infrastructure in all this. <laughs> because, uh, and I think you've also written about this, so I'll be leaning on that a bit. Yeah. I've heard that line multiple times. Yeah. Even from our uh, um, chief economic officer, or is it the central bank government, <laughs> 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 who say things like, oh, I asked 
textile manufacturers, what is the problem? Yeah. They said power. Mm. And then CBN is going to fix that. Yeah. Oh, I talked to toothpick manufacturers and they said power or roots mm. or so what exactly are the infrastructure bottlenecks around industrialization in Nigeria? Because what you see is that a lot of policy, even around infrastructure, still mimic our structural problems. Mm -hmm. For one, we know that after the colonialists left, we stopped investing in railways, yes. for example, if that's a colonial <laughs> infrastructure for some reasons. Yeah. You know, and even around this like road repairs or road construction, you still see things like ethnic fractionalization, mm -hmm. depending on who is financing the road. Yeah. You see a lot more interstate projects if it's the federal government yeah. and at local level, you don't really see big infrastructure projects. Yeah. You just see water pumps and, mm -hmm. um, and toilets. And toilets. So what are the infrastructure bottlenecks and what can break the lockdown precisely. Okay. Um, I like um, what you said around, you know, um, the CBN governor, minister of everything, going to meet this person, what do you need? Oh, meet that person, what do you need? I, I feel like it's a bad way to go, go about policy because it shows that we don't even have a, like a vision towards the kind of country we want or like a coherent strategy. I feel like if we have um, maybe our economic priorities figured out, then our infrastructure should kind of be tailored. The kind of infrastructure we build should be tailored to the kind of vision we have for the economy. So the challenge is this. We have a lot of young unemployed people. In fact, we have um, one in two Nigerians, they're either unemployed or underemployed, right? Mm. Now this is at the moment. One in two, is that right? Yeah. Um, um, unemployment and unemployment is almost 50%. Wow. If I remember correctly, okay, maybe a little over 40% anyway. But I know uh, for youth, it's worse for youth. Yeah. Yeah. So the challenge is going to become even more um, appealing in the next 20, 30 years when we have um, a lot of people in the country. So the question is, is policy really thinking about all these things? I don't think they are thinking about it. Um, but what should they be doing? I think they should be thinking about it and to come up with a strategy. I've seen a lot of debates around, so what is really the vision for economic prosperity in Nigeria? Do we have a vision to say, oh, we want to industrialize or we want a knowledge economy or we want to you know, do anything we want to? There is no vision for that. Even when you see the um, economic programs that governments bring out, they basically want to do everything. And everything they want to do still mirrors what we have currently on ground, right? We invest in agriculture, we invest in agriculture, we do this, we do that, right? We don't know what we're trying to achieve by investing in agriculture. We don't know what we're trying to achieve by investing in human capital, right? We are just doing everything. And for me, I think um, prioritizing, because there's a shortage of resources, right? And in economics, we say oh, it's essentially the study of opportunity cost because you can only have so much and you have so many things to do. So um, I have this farmer coming, I have um, textile coming, I have Nollywood coming, I have these people coming to, I mean, to come and meet me, and I am trying to do different kinds of things for them, right? 
I'm not thinking in terms of what should the economy really be focusing on for the future. What will be the biggest driver of jobs or productivity gains in the economy? And let me invest or build infrastructure around that for people. I think one of the reasons why MFLA is doing that is because they've not thought about that in terms of having a coherent strategy or a vision for the Nigeria of the future or how the economy is going to be or how we're going to create jobs for people. But in terms of infrastructure imperatives, for me, I always tend to think in terms of I'm very, very, I'm really not keen on industrialization, so to say, because mm. I feel like, I just feel like that has passed for Nigeria. I, I don't know why. I keep reading a lot about industrialization and, you know, it was the biggest driver of growth in Asia. It lifted millions of people out of poverty, right? Yeah. And even in terms of countries that are leaning more towards services like India, we've seen that they have also been struggling economically, right? They've not done enough yeah. in terms of lifting a lot of people out of poverty or creating economic prosperity or the kind of growth they had in China, sort of. But in Nigeria, there are just too many competing factors, right? For manufacturing, we say, oh, we need road infrastructure. We know road infrastructure is terrible in Nigeria. Ordinary moving goods, right? Hellish. <laughs> it's hellish, right? I was saying something, I was reading an article, and it's cheaper to import from outside the country, right? Yeah. From China. Yeah. Than to move goods. <laughs> yeah. From one end of Nigeria to another end, it's cheaper to lay an intercontinental fiber optic cable <laughs> than, to, than to take it from Lagos, Lagos, Lagos Island to mainland. <laughs> exactly. So I start thinking, what is really the way out for businesses? Does it make any sense for businesses to go to that extent? Of course, we have our port infrastructure issue, which is also crucial for industrialization because I can't start a manufacturing plant in. But no, and decide that Lagos is what I'm going to be importing materials from. Yeah. I don't see how that makes any sense for, yeah. for the country to well, have. Yeah. It makes no sense for your business, right? Yeah. To say, oh, I have a manufacturing plant in this place. I want to import through this same port in Lagos, yeah. right? In terms of roads, too, the roads are not just bad. Then you have human actors, state actors on the roads. Who are the roads for safety? But who are encumbrance to you know doing business because they'll be asking you for money and when you speak to businessmen, they'll tell you if you're moving goods interstate in Nigeria, the kind of bribes you pay before you get your goods down to where you're taking them to. So obviously I feel like roads are also absolutely critical. In Nigeria, my major idea is uh, I won't say I know all the kind of infrastructure we need to build. Um, my own is we should agree on what we really want to do. If we think industrialization is the way to go to accommodate a lot of Nigerians into the labor force, then let's say this is what we are pursuing, right? And let's try to build the infrastructure that will make it happen. You know, you, you need roads, you need ports, you need rail, you need those things, you need power. If it's a service economy you want to build, then you start thinking differently again, right? You mentioned laying fiber and if you want to have a service economy, you might want to start thinking about communications and having to invest in broadband and all those things. So it's basically a decision between what you want to do. You don't need to prioritize everything, build, rail, build. We don't even have the capacity to do it. 
The government doesn't have the capacity to do it, and we don't have a lot of private capital to pursue that. So I think if government comes out with a current strategy, then we know the kind of infrastructure that is actually critical. If you say you want a service economy, you need human capital, right? Even in industrialization too, you need human capital, right? But the level will obviously be different. Knowledge economies will have... Um, um, you can't compare <laughs> service workers in the US to factory workers in Vietnam or in Bangladesh, even if they're educated and need human capital in manufacturing, right? I, I don't want to call it maybe low-skilled. I mean, obviously, within human capital, there are different strands. Some are low-skilled, some are higher-skilled in what they're doing. So for Nigeria, I think it's something that we need to come out and decide and build the required infrastructure. Maybe we don't need to really build a lot of real... Maybe we need to just, you know, build, expand our broadband or something and invest in more schools and in more health clinics rather than building, you know, a lot of roads going to nowhere. So I feel like my thinking around infrastructure, and that was really the idea around the article, to say we are resources starved and we really need to prioritize. We really need to say this is what we want to do and invest in the infrastructure to make it happen. In a case where we have that, then all these distractions of the committee of um, Nollywood people coming to my office, or committee <laughs> of cow farmers coming to my office to say, oh, this is the infrastructure we need, this is the infrastructure we need. We don't, because that acts as a signal to private enterprise, to people in the economy, that this is government's um, focus, and they also start to explore opportunities you know, along that line. And you are not bothered about all these distractions about people doing rice farming or tomato farming or how you can help them build their own infrastructure. We can't do everything. We really need to prioritize. Do, do, do we need more private initiatives? Because, um, I don't know, I can't skirmish a bit when big things that could really, really move the level of the economy relies a bit too much on government. Because we all know some of the problems in that area yeah. and the slow decision-making process and everything. But, I mean, for example, Tolaram is building a port in Lagos, mm-hmm. I think with the uh, Lagos State Government yeah. and a few other partners. Yeah. So should policy really be about making such initiatives easier and then letting private capital just um, do some of the things? Yeah. For me, I think the role of governments is... Is absolutely crucial, even for whatever you want to do. I was reading about, you know, when the U.S. wanted to go to space, yeah, and yeah. the kind of investment they made, yeah, and how that sort of created knowledge for other industries, yeah. and how they were able to yeah. build capacities along yeah. that. And you want to think that was taking like an extent. It's very easy to not credit some of the inventions you see to government, right? Yeah, even if it was a result of a government grant or government funded project on behalf of government. So I believe absolutely we really need high quality people in in power, to be honest. I think that's probably one of the challenges we have in Nigeria. Yeah, I take that point, but it's um, interesting you mentioned the Apollo project because really even for a big economy like the US Mm -hmm. undertaking such a huge project, what you see is that behind the veil of everything, there are lots of private contractors, yes. you know, 
mm. private companies, and government just acts basically as the coordinator. Mm, mm. You know, so should we just let government coordinate rather than looking for money to invest and yes. saying that um, oh because tax to GDP ratio yes. is low, <laughs> we can't have good roads. We need money, and we need uh, to because <laughs> because we can't raise vats. Exactly. I absolutely agree with, I agree with that. But you know, the thing is coordination to takes knowledge. Takes knowledge. Yes. And you need trust. For instance, we talk about PPP projects and in some cases governments will take it over again, right? Yeah. And or they will not meet their commitments. Yeah. Yeah. So imagine you yeah, coming in a lot of that in the oil and gas. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, so imagine when you're now saying, oh, you come up with a very bold policy proposal and you're saying, oh, don't worry, we're just going to you know coordinate everything. And I mean, I'm even assuming you have the quality, the human capital to actually create strategies and to probably coordinate such systems. And you invite private capital to, oh, let's come and do this. I feel like for Nigeria to do that, a lot of private interests will be reluctant because of the kind of history we've had. Mm. So it's not just about even knowledge, it's about trust in the ability of government to do some of the things they want to do. So yeah, I actually agree with you that government can lead a lot of things and they do not necessarily have to lead themselves. They do not need to provide the capital themselves. Private interests will do that on their behalf. But they need to get coordination right. They need to get the strategy right initially. And you need people in government to do that. Private contractors are not the people that decide what the US government should do. Yeah. It's people, knowledge people within the government, the government that come up with it and now say, oh, you know, invite private capital to pursue some of these things. Yeah. And something we need to think of. Um, I feel like government needs to completely eradicate this mindset that they are going to fix everything. Because that's the idea we are seeing with this loan they want to go and get. Hmm. That, oh, we refurbish this, we refurbish that, we, we, we want $30 billion that you can't even pay for. You can't even pay for the existing level of that. Probably can't even raise. Exactly. <laughs> because I don't know who will give you $30 billion. I, I, <laughs> so, you know, I, I was talking to my partner on that and my first reaction was there's no way Nigerian government can raise $30 billion. This particular government. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So I feel like it's something where we really need more quality people in government. Unfortunately, we don't have enough quality human capital. Maybe the few people who want to do it, right, they get frustrated out of the system because of um, bureaucracy and all kinds of challenges we have. We have rather. But I believe... Um, the starting point is getting a hearing right in the public sector to have people who will then say, private capital, come and do this or come and do that. This is what we want to do. But we want you guys to lead the effort. There's an interesting uh, story in the news around that area recently. <laughs> of course. <laughs> so, yeah, getting hiring right, it's absolutely crucial, even in public service. Yeah. People usually think that you don't need smart minds to work in government, but yeah. uh, it's probably even a lot more important. Yeah. You know, because pri- the private sector are going to sort themselves because there's private interest mm-hmm. at stake. So, you better get hiring right or you lose your money. Yeah. You know? But in the public sector where there is a lot of ethical concerns around public trust, 
I think it's very important. So, what's your biggest argument against industrialization? I know we have discussed this privately, and you said you don't really think that manufacturing and industry is really going to be a big advantage for countries like Nigeria going forward. What's your best take on that? Mine is, um, from what I read about most of these Asian economies, there's a lot of um, importance attached to labor, right? Yeah. In terms of the quality of labor, in terms of the cost of labor itself. And this is not even to mention the physical infrastructure requirements of having an industrialized economy. And in terms of the quality of labor, of course, we have a lot of people in Nigeria. Um, I feel like they don't have enough knowledge for an industrialized economy. I feel they're expensive. And it's not just cost. Cost is not an absolute thing you look at. You look cost, measure it to productivity, right? Even if your labor is cheap, in nominal terms, in naira terms, it's cheap. If they're not productive, it's too expensive for a manufacturer. So in terms of the productivity of people, I have not just seen it. I don't see enough in, in terms of that. Because we are not actually competing with ourselves, right? We are competing with the rest of the world. And what happened in Asia, Asian countries did not just build an industrialized economy for their consumption. No. They built it to be globally competitive. They built it for the world. So when we say we want to build an industrialized economy, we are going to be building it for the world, right? Yeah. And in terms of that, when you look at what other countries have been able to do or where other countries, um, where they are now currently, um, I don't think we're best suited <laughs> to be the ones to bring a situation where maybe you have less interest in Asia and you have maybe more interest in, in Africa. What you've seen in particular is basically you've been seeing switching even within Asia. So if China is not that attractive for you, for like manufacturing or anything, you see people going to Vietnam, right? Going to other... Yeah, yeah. Bangladesh. Yeah. Bangladesh, other Asian countries, not actually coming to Africa. Africa. So and there, there are a lot of opportunities there even to explore within Asia, not to talk of um, how easy for knowledge to be transferred within Asian economies compared to just coming to Nigeria to come and say, or you're going to start a factory or whatever. Then also in terms of capital, which is connected to the fiscal infrastructure requirements, maybe one of the overlooked things is usually economists will say, oh, you need to save to accumulate capital and um, you know invest and all those things. And if you're not doing enough of that, then you better be importing capital via foreign investment. But you see in Asia, there was also a lot of even local capital generated via savings, right? I know China has one of the highest savings rates in the world. And when you're thinking in terms of creating developments internally, in terms of building infrastructure, or even the resources to educate people, then you're thinking in terms of, um, do we actually have the resources needed to kickstart the kind of development we want to have industrialization-wise in Africa or in Nigeria? I don't think we have enough of that because I don't know what is responsible for weak savings, and I don't want to go into that. But I feel like on our own, we're not doing enough in terms of accumulating capital to invest in those areas. So it's not really just about shortage of knowledge or low productivity. 
there's also the capital bit about it that we're not generating capital internally and we're not receptive. So even when you have capital deficit, then the next thing is to encourage as much people to come into your country to come and invest, to bring external capital to come and invest. We've not created the environment for um, that to thrive as well or for anybody to see, for companies to see Nigeria as an attractive destination for you know, investments. And so really what then is the future of industrialization for us, all that put together? Um, one could make the argument too for services, right? I, I was just getting to that. <laughs> <laughs> one could make the argument for services, but I feel like, okay, I'll, I'll use an example. Services now, for instance, we talk about the recent, uh, I'm talking about modern services now. Yeah. We're looking about a lot of activity around tech currently okay. happening within the economy and our people have gone, are doing well in spite of the government, right? Yeah. Not because the government is deliberate in yeah. actually um, spurring innovation in the economy. Yeah. And I'm thinking to myself, how come we've had a local industry, of course, it's not still as big as yeah. we want it to be. Yeah. But to put it into context, the capital that has come into Nigeria today via fintech firms, yeah. when you compare it to the total capital that has come into the country, it's actually sizable. Yeah. Actually very, very sizable. Yeah. Then you start thinking to yourself, are there, you know, maybe special areas of the economy that could easily come up with little government support that doesn't really need a lot of government support that easily go on and even be competitive globally and do fantastic job. In what areas can you think of that you have a lot of Nigerian um, people, professionals, go outside the country and actually be competitive? It's mainly in the service sector. I would argue that you would find a manufacturing plant manager or a factory manager in Nigeria that would beat someone in Bangladesh or in Vietnam. But you can have a Nigerian software developer competing with someone in Europe. You have Nigerian software developers going to conferences and presenting ideas and talks, and they're widely followed. And so one of the ways I think about it is some of the barriers we have in that I feel like it would be very, very difficult for us to overcome. And the kind of efforts you need on, on the part of government to actually be committed to it, to actually have the knowledge to drive those changes and the resources to do that. Um, a lot of that, um, in the service economy, many people are already doing it without the government. The fintech firms we have and uh, companies investing in them, they're not investing in them because of government support, right? It's because they've discovered that even within this dysfunctional system we have in Nigeria, some people have managed to create an ecosystem that at least things work. We can say regulation affects them to a very considerable extent. We know what um, um, these bike riding, you know, um, companies right, are right right alien. Right alien companies are facing in Lagos, for instance, and um, which is also one of the issues we have with governments, right, in in that sector. But really, in terms of say Andela, for instance, what has really been in terms of regulation? Some of the sectors that have been able to avoid. The prime, the prime of governments, for instance, and because of that, they've been able to attract a lot of investment into them. And these companies are investing into them because why? And Andela does not need road infrastructure that a processing company would need, for instance. I don't need to start moving goods from the ports to anywhere, right? 
what I just need is probably reliable power, right? I need um, good internet, right? And to an extent, we, we say we have terrible internet. We actually have terrible internet, right? Broadband penetration is very, very weak in Nigeria. We cannot attest to that. But to an extent, too, things are getting better, right? They are building technologies for our markets that actually will not make you require a lot of data usage. Extreme Netflix, right? And it's not because you know they've dumbed down that technology to be able to accommodate like the quality of network you have and developer exactly that you have in developing economies. I don't know how they manage to make that happen, but you find that too in terms of productivity you have with a laptop in Nigeria can sit in a room and create value externally and get paid for the value they've been able to create. And what do they need? Power, internet, even if it's spotty, right? It still works to get the job done. It's different from the kind of barriers you have to scale for industrialization. Um, you're saying, oh, there's this boot camp saying, oh, come and learn to be a product manager. Once you acquire the skill over six months, you can set it anywhere in the world, right? Yeah. We can't do that for manufacturing. It's definitely not easy. Manufacturing is not something that you can open Google and type on YouTube how to design a website. And in two weeks, you're already making money from helping people to create a website or do um, some of the things. So really, that is really the idea around my bias for services. For, I have a very deep bias <laughs> for services. And it's because I want something that will not require a lot of government effort because I do not trust the government. But because with the kind of people we have, it's still a sector we can explore. Now, even without government, even without um, a lot of infrastructure investment, we can still make magic happen. And we've been making that happen because I was reading a report, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars are coming to the country in investment just for tech. And then that is just developing local talent and exporting it also has attracted hundreds of millions of dollars. And the government is not able to attract. What they say is, oh, we have a memorandum of understanding, which eventually does not translate, translate into actual investment. And these service companies are able to do that quickly. The kind of investment government cannot even attract to develop certain sectors or certain industries. So for me, I feel like um, on the part of government, industrialization requires a lot of effort. They need to not just invest in human capital, but power, road infrastructure, rail, and all those things. Not to not talk about the local value chain that supports industrialization, which is a different thing entirely on its own. Do we have it? Do we have the knowledge for that? I don't think we have it. Is it easy to acquire the knowledge? It's not so easy compared to some of the options we have in services. So that is really my bias. Interesting. But... I would like to push back. <laughs> I think I'm doing a lot of pushing back in this uh, exchange. So I'd like to push back on that a bit. Okay. Now, isn't manufacturing mm. industrialization a necessary process for you to hone your skills in making things? Yeah. It's like Michael Dobbs said that development is not a leapfrog. Is actually a hard slog. You have to really go and the grinder. You know, because you mentioned fintech, at least to me, it does not still yet feel like the investment are coming primarily because of the potential. You mentioned Andela. Andela is having to change its business model. 
and Jumia is actually unwinding in several markets across the continent. Mm -hmm. You know, so wouldn't it be a case of eventually a lot of this hot money comes in and no real returns, and then the investment uh, dry up over time? So I see manufacturing as a way for the local workforce to actually develop your skill at making things. Because I don't really see any country in the world, you, you mentioned the case of India, mm -hmm. that has really concentrated on services, but they still have a struggling economy. Yeah. They are not even close to China mm -hmm. in terms of economic productivity and value. I haven't really seen a country that failed at manufacturing, mm -hmm. but prospered in services. You know, so for me, that's why I think that however tough it is, manufacturing still represents a necessary step. You know, I don't think a company like Huawei or Xiaomi in China would be making globally competitive phones today if the Chinese economy didn't start with basic assembly. Mm. Mm. You understand, yeah. and even in China today, you find that our services is bigger than manufacturing. Mm -hmm. And China is usually our go-to example when we talk about manufacturing. So, is it really possible for an economy to leapfrog into services without really learning to do the basic? Hard, but necessary things. That's my pushback. I don't think it's possible, yeah. right? Yeah. But I'm working with the restrictions we have. Like the commission say, I've held the government concerns. I do not have any trust in the current government or with the kind of structure we have in Nigeria. How difficult it is to get smart people <laughs> into government and let them stay that they'll be able to come up with a strategy that will work for Nigeria. Because I believe industrialization is deliberate. To the extent that industrialization is a deliberate policy by government and that takes a hard, a lot of hard work, then we must be ready to do it, right? The question is, do we have the capacity to do it? Do we have people who are willing to do it? I don't think we do, right? And basically my argument is, why we keep waiting for that miracle to happen in Asorok or in Abuja or in government offices that they get iron right, that they figure out a way to come up with good policy, that they figure out a way to get the buy-in of private investors. There is something else that can be happening while um, government is still trying to, you know, get their acts right. In waiting for them to get their acts right, we can't be stuck forever. Now, you can talk about the little gains that were approved from focusing on services, right? And don't forget, what I'm even actually advocating for is not even government involvement in services. It's by private enterprise just doing that in spite of whatever it is government is doing to at least bring some, some form of benefit. Yeah, I get the sense you're making in terms of having, I mean, even in terms of competition, right? In the end, Average software developer in the US maybe works with Google. Um, Google has been operating for decades. Yeah. You know the knowledge they've been able to acquire, how they've been able to transfer that. Yeah. So it's perfectly understandable when I can say, in terms of the sophistication of the market we have currently, it's not there, right? 
you can't expect software developers who have worked on projects for decades. Yeah. You can't compare them or software managers you've had and those people directing projects compared to the Nigerian market, which is still at its early phase, really. So the kind of accumulated knowledge that has benefited maybe software developers in the US, given the structure of the environment they have, is obviously absent in Nigeria. And the problem we have now is we are not even retaining those, those talents locally. Because it's by, like you said, just like by building things in manufacturing, also in technologies, by building things, it's by building things that you also improve. And a lot of Nigerians in tech, they've not, you know, have that kind of exposure or knowledge from having a very good industry from the start. Don't forget, this entire thing we've seen in this market has not been up to a decade. Yeah. It's not been actually been up to a decade. So we should be a bit more... Um, <laughs> optimistic? <laughs> no, not optimistic. We should not forget that in making um, our comparisons. Yeah. We've been doing this industrialization thing since when? Ajakuta is big since when? <laughs> no, no, I'm going to mention it now. Government is pursuing industrialization. They say, oh, we need steel, right? Ajakuta is not a good example of anything. It's not a good example of anything because that is one thing that should make you see the folly of the government we have. And we've been thinking about industrialization. We should think in terms of what government has been doing over the years and what they will still continue to do. One of the loans they are collecting now, don't they plan to use it to fund the same the same agricultural bond project? Exactly. Then you start thinking what is really the plan for industrialization. So I think we should be a bit um, not be too harsh on what we've seen in, in that area in terms of local technology or whatever. Everything that has exploded has been within a decade. Now, the question is, could it be that we are struggling with industrialization for political reasons? Not because we can't really do we industrialization do yeah. if we, we want, want to. to. You, you know, because when we talk about services, even the way that some of these advanced economies are Profiting from services. Okay, now one of the arguments that you see tossed around these days is the so-called creative industries. Yeah, you know, Nollywood mm-hmm. and um, Bonaboy is blowing all yeah, over the yeah, world, yeah. and the so-called economic potentials yeah. of that. I mean, when people talk about Nollywood, one of my favorite examples when I talk about this with friends is that Logan. For example, yeah. the, the movie Logan, yeah. by Hollywood standards, is considered low budget mm-hmm. at maybe 60 million, yeah, yeah. 50, 60 million dollar project. Yeah. But you still find that that project supported 15,000 jobs. You know, I'm still waiting for a Nigerian movie, you know, even with that budget that would have that much economic effect. Because there's an entire value chain of people that build sets, software managers, equipment makers, you know. And you find that the way we tell our stories, the ambition, they don't really allow for that much creativity enough for the so-called creative industry to have and to thrive, you know. Music is the same. I mean, now, the new brave in town is for every artist to have their own. 
XYZ life in December. <laughs> but I mean, Cardi B was just in Nigeria recently, and um, even the way everything was managed, you see that. There's still a bit of a difference. The stage manager had to be brought in from abroad. How the stage, the set, had to be constructed. I mean, you go to a typical Nigerian show and the artists come on stage to mind. Yes, basically, the set is the sound is, is terrible. Is terrible. Yeah. and that so so I mean. If we really want to benefit from services, are we not going to run into the same issues. issue of what uh, if I were me as well, our anyhowness? <laughs> you know, are we not going to be threading the same path? Is service really, really going to? I'm not being harsh. I hope I'm not. Mm-hmm. Anyway, no, no, no. You made a valid point. You made a valid point. I feel like um, a lot of things are actually changing. Um, Someone who is very pessimistic about the future of Nigeria, mm-hmm. and that's not going to change. But even in how gloomy everything is, yeah. there are still some things I'm seeing in some sectors that I can say I'm optimistic about certain sectors. The creative sector, like you rightly mentioned, is one of them. Now, I know things are imperfect. Yeah, I go to all these shows and I see all the problems they have. But one thing I've noticed right now is even when you have all these um, very poor setups, even in Nollywood and music and everything, there's a new generation of Nigerians. I don't know if you've noticed it. There's a new generation of Nigerians trying to do things differently. And for me, I'm always very careful about the quality of things, yeah. the aesthetics and everything. Yeah. Nigerians really do not care about it. And it was when I was growing up, right? If you build a cabinet for my mom, my mom would tell you this is not aligned, right? Yeah. If you build a structure, a home, or I mean a part of a home, and you see that it's not straight, yeah, right? My mom will complain this thing is not straight, right? <laughs> and I picked that up. Yeah. And that is also reflected in the output we see all over Nigeria, even in workplaces. Usually, what I always tell my analysts is, don't you have high eyes for good things or something? <laughs> yeah, because I'm like. There are some things you see that you should know this is bad and you should correct, right? And I feel like that is what we've seen in almost every area of Nigeria. Nigerians are attached to poor quality things, maybe because they don't know better, yeah. but not enough people demand better as well. But what I've recently noticed is there's really a new generation of Nigerians changing the narrative, right, in each of those sectors. Even within music, there are new breeds who are more deliberate about their act. For instance, Olamide can decide to mine, right? Yeah. Um, mine all his shoes. But I know Lady Donny doesn't mind. Who is Lady Donny? <laughs> <laughs> she's one of the new kids on the block, and I think she's just 23 years old. Oh. So she curates... Apologies to her, by the way. <laughs> so she curates um, an entire experience. Yeah. And a lot of these kids, also, you could say, maybe many are not schooled in Nigeria. Mm-hmm. And some have had exposure to mm-hmm. see what happened abroad and they're bringing it back home. Mm-hmm. And what you find is later on, you see that Nigerian consumer, once they see that it's an option, yeah. that there's a new breed of people who are not deliberate about their crafts. You know, see me, you know, I definitely gold. Those ones are very, very deliberate about the experiences they create for people. Mm-hmm. Then you start to see, you know, changes. It's not going to happen at once. 
but over time it is going to change in fashion also too you see a lot of young nigerian creatives right coming up with different kinds of designs of course they are still victims of the environment right but in terms of applying themselves into doing things better i feel like there's a new breed of nigerians who are more deliberate about what they're doing creating good quality products in the service economy i see that in the service economy more than anywhere else in nigeria i mean that movement that i'm seeing i see it more in services than any other sector in nigeria and your point about politics and industrialization i totally agree that it's not really a case of it can't be done right um it's a case of like i've said i am held government that this government is going to be useless right I've all that concern. <laughs> and that's on that basis that I'm discussing <laughs> my services bias. I, I hope so, they, don't, they don't come for me for your speech. <laughs> so basically what I'm saying is, yes, I agree with you. Then if we can say under ideal situations, if we are t- talking of the ideal now, yeah. say, no, we have a government that works, right? And they say, oh, industrialization, what should we do? Should Nigeria be doing industrialization? I would say yes. Or you're saying, oh, should we bring managers from Asia to come and, you know, hold positions in Nigeria, sort of, to, like, manage everything. I'm totally going to agree with you. But currently, like I said, I have a long-term, I mean, I have a long-term sell on Nigeria, and it's getting worse (laughs) by the day. (laughs) My recommendation is a sell for Nigeria. So, government, I have absolutely no trust, not just even in government, because we tend to think of institutions as... Um, all this four year, you know, we tend to concentrate on Buhari, on Jonathan, but even government institutions are not in four year sectors. It's still the same, you know, staff that in those ministries over decades, over periods of time. And we need to be a bit more deliberate about, you know, improving that quality fundamentally and not just focus on saying we want Kingsley Mangalu to become president or we want Mrs. Obi to be the president because even if she becomes the president, She's still going to be a victim of the institutions she inherits, right? So I'm not really looking in the sense of, not just in terms of the political cycles, but also in terms of the core of our workforce in the public sector. Mm-hmm. Interesting, interesting. So recently, I think on Twitter, there was this yeah. issue where a bunch of Nigerians are calling for some form of dictatorship. You yeah. know, that... Um, Democracy, <laughs> democracy isn't really working. Uh, and you mentioned the issue of political cycles, you know. Is that really a problem? As in, is our current democratic structure a, a barrier in the way of serious long-term planning? I don't think it's a barrier. Because Nigerians want lazy way out, right? Yeah, we, we talk about um, you know economic restructuring. This debate has been going on for forever, and I'm thinking even if you have a strong man, most of the challenges you have in Nigeria, you still continue to have them. We currently have a strong man. <laughs> oh wow, <laughs> that is true. <laughs> so like, you are still going to have it because economics is not something you can will into happening. 
No. You can't win growth or development, no matter how you are the strongest man. And that is why even um, you, they will say even Asia, China became a bit more liberal, right? Yeah, on, yeah. Their, on their way to definitely um, economic development, definitely. So I believe most of the the consensus we need to reach. Nigeria is very heterogeneous, right? We all know, and at every point in time, there are always conflicting actors on when we need to make very critical decisions maybe on the future of the country. And I feel like that is that stage we need to arrive at um, in terms of cooperation within ourselves, knowing how to organize ourselves better. And I don't think in terms of organization, having a military man or a strong man who is going to rule for 50 years is going to do it. In Africa, we are not exactly alien to that concept, right? We've had strong men lead so many countries for decades in Africa, right? And even in those systems, you can see the level of dysfunction present, right? If you're a strong man or whatever it is you are, you still need quality people around you, right? China, with whatever it is, political system they're practicing, was different ideas that led to the chain of events that brought about the industrialization and development. It's not necessarily because of the strong man. Yeah. If you have a strong man who is smart enough to realize that, oh, he needs smart hands in ministries, he needs to pursue liberal ideas or very good ideas and gives them the free reign to, you know, kind of make the decisions they want to make, then it's a different case. Obasanjo was considered a strong man too, now, within the context of Nigeria's history. And still, the, the difference between his government and what we've seen lately is that he actually didn't have the ideas. His experiences couldn't even have given the ideas they implemented but he was able to at least assemble people who were promising and who could come up with things like pension reforms and um, all sorts of reforms that they pursued under the administration. Some would argue, maybe Ayosogunro will argue that the Nigerian constitution itself is not something that means that every president that emerges will be a strong man, right? Yeah. And the kind of arrangement we have in terms of our political system means even if you have someone who is not a military person per se, when he becomes president, he has a lot of powers, yeah. right? Yeah. But I think that one is there, but really it's in terms of the kind of ideas we eventually pursue. And um, in terms of making those kind of ideas happen, I feel like democracy offers the best part. Because having strong men is um, the time it takes to make changes could take... Look at Zimbabwe now, this guy was there for decades, right? Yeah. Meanwhile, he could have experimented over that period of time, yeah. um, that that man was there pursuing the same, you know, imposing the same level of ideas and all those things, suppressing voices and new ideas. I feel like under democracy, there are more lessons to learn along the way quickly. You're able to do experiments more quickly. You're able to change ideas more quickly than you would have under a dictatorship or, or anything else. I'm disgusted at the views that, you know, um, what we need is a strong man the history of Africa is replete with all these strong men mm, who have not made anything happen. So I don't think that is a factor to to really doing anything. But, okay, to to play, I'm not exactly playing the devil's advocate <laughs> here, but there's a kind of nuance yeah. in that argument that I would like to explore. Okay. Yes, ideas. The entire reason we're having this conversation is because of ideas. Yeah. Ideas matter yeah. a lot. Ideas are what determines the kind of change yeah. in society. 
But we also know that ideas do better under a good leader. Mm-hmm. You know, someone like Park Chung Hee in South Korea or Lee Kua Yu in Singapore. It's a bit difficult to imagine the history of those countries yeah. without the yeah. kind of deliberate, determined, and admittedly brilliant leadership that those guys really implemented. Deng Xiaoping in China is also a good example of that. You know, is it just the fact that we have um, low-quality strong men <laughs> in Africa who are, who are not, who don't really know? Mm. They are just strong on paper, but um, they don't really... Because, okay, you mentioned Zimbabwe. You have the current guy... I've forgotten his name now, a bit difficult to pronounce. Who was with Mugabe for those years? Yes. And now Mugabe is dead. You're trying to change direction. And then you wonder that, okay, what was it that kept sustaining the equilibrium that was under Mugabe if there were people, even within the party structure, who felt they were going in the wrong direction? You understand? You can't help but conclude that it is the sheer force of the man at the helm itself driving that process because at the root of it, you may have people actually competing. And Nigeria, Obasanjo, you mentioned Obasanjo, there's also a very good example there when when he was about to leave, he privatized the refineries. Mm. You know, and I think one of the buyers was actually Dan Rudy. And one of the first things the next administration did on getting to power from the same party, you understand, someone who actually mentored and basically ushered into power. One of the first things he did was to roll back that particular action. And then years later, the, the entire country is waiting for a Dangote refinery exactly. that could have happened Absolutely. years ago. Absolutely. You understand? So there's also the question of continuity. So is it just a question of we have low quality, strong men in Africa, and it's not just that people have a dead wish with tyranny and dictatorship, you know? Um, of course, with all the evidence we've had, <laughs> with insights, we can say we have <laughs> poor, quality, <laughs> poor quality strong men. But I think I your general idea on the fact that even when you have a democratic system, you need someone who can give people something to buy into yeah. and who can make things happen. Let me just use that phrase. Someone who can make things happen, like they did in Korea, like they did in China, that like they did in Singapore, yeah. right? Now, it's not necessarily because of the fact that they used every power available to them, although some use in, in some cases. Um, sometimes it's really about the kind of ideas they are pursuing. And that is why these men you mentioned, they are probably unicorns. Because I'm sure even in the history of China, China and India, was really, they used to be one of the prosperous economies of you know, all those yes. And what happened between then and now when they are even still considered as emerging 
you know, economies. They've had a lot of leaders, even along that structure that they've been practicing. And it was someone that just had a different idea of how things should be done. And that was what made the difference. It was not actually the fact that the structure remarkably changed. I mean, if you look at structure vis-a-vis -vis the ideas, you will see that the ideas have evolved more than the structures they had um, in those places. And I think that is really the difference. Also, in terms of party system, parties are also institutions now, right? Yes. And in Nigeria, it's still the same problem. So, in um, say you have the party in China or the party in Singapore or anything, they tend to be more ideological in terms of you know having the same ideals. They buy into the same thing. Um, in Nigeria, you see socialists in PDP, a capitalist in PDP, right? Yeah. Um, and someone doesn't even know what he wants to do. So there's really no ideas on the kind of things they should promote. I feel everything still go back to the ideas of the leaders you have, not actually structures. If you have a bad structure, someone with ideas can make things a bit better, even whilst also improving the structure of what you have on the ground. In terms of institutions, that plays a major role too. And we need to start asking ourselves questions too. Um, how can we build very good institutions, not just even for government institutions, or private institutions, even to the political party. I feel like, for me, we've had too many bad, strong leadership, not just even in Africa. All over the world, yes. To the extent that those you've mentioned are unicorns, basically. And there have been people who have been very radical in what they've been able to, you know, um, in terms of their ideas and what they've been able to pursue and the kind of partnerships and cooperation they sought to make things happen within their um, um, country. And the question now is, if you get it wrong, how long does it take to change course? That's one of the things we probably didn't explore. And I, I would like to see if they explore that in the case of China and India, given the rapid progress they had early on and the later slump they had. Was it that there was a mistake in terms of leadership and given the structure of you know, the political system they had? Um, that was perpetrated for a long period of time until they finally had maybe someone come up and make very bold improvements. I think from what I've read along those lines, I think it supports your position in a way. I mean, China, for example, part of the reasons for the slump in economic growth in China, part of the reason that they had nearly a thousand years of regress, yeah. you know, was because there was no scientific revolution. I mean, the scientific revolution that happened in Europe, yeah. which ultimately culminated in the Enlightenment, totally missed China, yeah. you know, and the point of the world. So, yeah, ideas are important, yeah. like you said. So, I guess we know what we are doing here then. <laughs> <laughs> so... On that note, I would like to ask you, and you have 50 seconds to answer this, you know, <laughs> what, what is the one idea Jeez. currently that you would like to see spread rapidly in Nigeria? Hmm. One idea, um, I think the idea is just that things can change, right? And I'll give you examples. Yeah. You know, most times we say that won't work yeah right or this won't work yeah when you hear someone talk about something this won't work it won't work so you discard it you don't even explore it being on twitter has exposed me to a lot of movements that i've seen 
And initially you'd be like, why is this person doing this thing? It doesn't make any sense. It's not going to work. And eventually we discover that it takes some time, but eventually it works, right? Sometimes it works immediately, but not every time, right? And that goes with activism. Even as terrible as Nigeria is, we've seen small movements who have made, you know, changes. So I would say the biggest idea I would probably like to promote is for Nigerians to believe things can work. That ties into, you know, demanding for something better, really. Because if women are doing the market match, don't touch women, don't yeah. cause. Yeah. And you see that there was a lot of resistance when they went. And subsequent visits into the market, people started saying that there was actually a difference, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that is very, very key. Basically, they say Nigeria, we are low quality people, right? Editi wrote an article around managing like that, mm. right? We need to think that things can work, things can change. So we should start demanding for better quality things from politicians, from businessmen. I feel like that's one of the ways we can really improve outcomes. If Nigerians believe or ideas that things can change, this is not our... Or if um, it is done this way, it can always be done better, right? That things can change. I think that's the biggest thing I can think of because I feel like um, the multiplier effect in terms of the relationships we have, even... The micro relationships demanding for maybe better quality from your tailor or from carpenters. You discover that Nigerians doesn't even have good tailors. Um, but the Republic tailors, Ghanaian tailors are actually better than Nigerian tailor. Even in carpentry, the works you see done by all these people from other countries, they actually do it better. Then you start asking, what kind of culture do we have? It's a culture where we don't test things, where we don't question things, especially when they're in print be it in the constitution, even though it is wrong to be in the constitution in the first place. That's why our parents will see broadcasts on WhatsApp because they are not, they've not been taught to question things or to challenge things in print or to challenge ideas. They will see it, use salt to, to bathe your kids, to prevent them from um, getting Ebola. And they start you know, broadcasting it to everybody without questioning it, without testing it. So I think that is really the idea I have in terms of that can really have um, a massive impact on the population. So Nigerians will tell you they believed in change in 2015. <laughs> that is not the kind of change I'm talking about. <laughs> this is not in believing a leader to, to bring about magic. This is in our relationships to ask for better governance. Some believe Nigerians are not, you know, they don't do a lot of activism, right? We all track what happened in Hong Kong, right? Yeah. And uh, some people feel like Nigerians are not, you know. And for me, I feel like maybe it's because of the culture. We've been taught not to question things from authority. You have to just obey you know, and do the way it is if you don't want problems. And I feel like um, that is a different kind of thing to explore that will really open a lot of minds into things we can do differently. And maybe we could start seeing the benefits. When you tell a Nigerian, some Nigerians that, oh, this person collects his earnings from government job cannot support his living. And some Nigerians will say, um, Yoruba people will say, yeah. that it's from where you're working that you derive benefits. Yeah. But should you be collecting bribes 
everything is just normalized because it's the way it's done anyway. So we continue being in that way. So I feel like that is really what needs to change. That concept of you know managing like that it needs to really change overall. Do we need more capitalism? I mean, do we need more capitalist evangelists? Man, I think we have a lot of capitalists on paper, mm. right? But when they go outside their business, they become socialists. Even when you see a lot of Nigerian capitalists that have enjoyed free enterprise, right? Yeah. That has supported their businesses. And the lack of protectionism in a particular industries um, actually facilitated their entry into, in, that. into that sector or the kind of knowledge they've been able to acquire you discover that maybe when they go outside the industry or when they're talking about broader issues they become you know more that instinct that instinct kicks, kicks in automatically mm-hmm. so I won't say we need um, a lot of capitalists I believe we have a lot of capitalists in Nigeria already because we need more capitalists in practice rather <laughs> than on paper. Than on paper, we need more maybe um, more people to Im- imbibe capitalist ideas rather than just see. That way, we say the capitalist is it a capitalist? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you say uh, I'm private enterprise. I'm doing private enterprise, even if it's government patronage. Really, that has supported everything that I'm doing. Mm. You wouldn't want to believe that, mm. and would always seek, you know, government's protection and everything is doing right. But he wants the free reign to do what he is doing. So we are after this when it's convenient to be. <laughs> so yeah, I think it's the ideas we need to spread. Capitalist ideas need to spread, and they need to be imbibed rather than um, people just you know saying. Oh, we need more private people. We have a lot of private people doing private stuff in Nigeria. I also think that a lot of the arguments will have to be framed in a localized manner. Because, obviously, because of history, mm-hmm. we automatically associate capitalist ideas with imperialism, mm-hmm. colonialism, yeah. you know, with yeah. something foreign. Yeah. So I think a lot of the advocacy and uh, the yeah, we have to hone it. Yes, we, we have that to hone it. Yes, that one yes, yes, that. yes, yes. So, Absolutely. Yes. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. I mean, it's, it's, it's super it's, exciting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thank you. You can subscribe to the podcast and our newsletter on untrapped.substack.com. Again untrapped.substack.com and also get notified about future episodes.